Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 2. Titus, chapter 2. There is theory, and then there's practice, and they're intimately related. One leads to the other. Music theory is for making music. Physics is for doing all kinds of things. Cars, bombs. The study of medicine is for healing people. And doctrine is for life. Doctrine is for life. Dare I say that something is wrong with the person who likes to study music theory or medicine merely as a curiosity with no interest in where those things lead or appreciation for where they lead. Theory leads to practice, and it leads us to practice. That's what Paul meant when he instructed Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. To teach what accords with sound doctrines. How the chapter opens. In chapter 1, Paul instructed Titus to put the church in order to appoint elders. Elders who are holding fast to the trustworthy word and who are able to teach and to correct those who contradicted the word of God. And in chapter 2, Paul instructs Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, to instruct particular people and their particular roles and stations in life with how they ought to live if they believe these things, living that fits the world if sound doctrine is true. Next week, Ron Giese will close the deal, if you will, with the third chapter, which focuses on the sphere of the world. But chapter 2 focuses, we could say, on the sphere of the home. As we'll see, the equation works the other way as well. Theory leads to practice, but practice demonstrates theory. We could say that practice shows off theory. A beautiful piece of music shows off music theory. A clean bill of health after a surgery shows off the value and power of medicine. And so Paul says that by our godliness, by our good works, that we adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, as we'll read. We make it attractive. We are as a setting is to a diamond. We are to the gospel. In my prep, I fetched a glass of water and I decided to use a mug. I almost never do that. Maybe God was in it. Because when I was drinking from the mug, I read the verse, adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect, and learned that this was the theme for a women's ministry retreat many years ago that Ryan taught. Who was at that retreat? There you go. We had about, we had about one or two of the first service as well. So we'll do Titus 2 again. We make beautiful God's truth. We show off the beauty of the gospel. We should study doctrine, but doctrine is not for nerding out. Doctrine is for living out in life. So in chapter 2, the Bible applies itself. Paul gives instructions to Titus for how he's to instruct the people in his congregations and in the churches throughout Crete. So let's read together Titus chapter 2. Paul's words to Titus, God's word to us. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, 
to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. Well, Titus was to declare these things with authority. And so we're here this morning to sit under the authority of God's declared word. I'll declare these things to you as well. It's easy to disregard these things. Some of them will be hard to hear, but let's not disregard God's word. In fact, let's Let's be in prayer even as we hear that God will make us zealous for good works, not not merely committed to them, but zealous for them, defined by them. This chapter falls nicely into two parts, answering, we could say, two questions. What kind of life accords with sound doctrine? What kind of life accords with sound doctrine? And then, how does doctrine lead to this kind of life? We are going to spend by far almost the majority of the sermon in answer to that first question, and we'll end in answer to the second. First, what kind of life accords with sound doctrine? Common roles for uncommon living. Common roles for uncommon living, verses 1 through 10. The commonness of the roles that Paul addresses is striking. It shows us that no menial role, no normal lot in life is outside the sacredness of the Christian life and an opportunity to bring glory to God. The most glorious things we believe change the most mundane things that we do and invest it with significance. Sound doctrine leads to sound living, sound being healthy doctrine, leading to healthy living. If you can get God in the world right and sound doctrine right and the gospel right, you'll know how to live in the world and you'll have the fuel and motivation and joy that the gospel brings to live in that way, to live a sound life. Let us remember who we're talking about here. This is written to Titus who's been put in Crete to put Crete, the Cretan church in order. Cretans were, island, Cretans were islanders famous in their own words for being always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They lived from the gut. They followed their passions, a culture that was self-destructive and even disgusting. But Paul went there because Cretans needed Christ, and Christ died for his elect on Crete. So for all of the harsh words that are said about Crete, straightforwardly an evaluation of Cretan culture, Jesus sent Paul there, and Paul went there in love for Cretan people. And God is building his church on that island. 
Paul preached the gospel, formed churches, and now he left Titus to put things in order. And part of putting things in order was seeing that Christian homes, those Christians that make up this church, in the course of their everyday life and their everyday roles were also in order. As we'll see, the pulpit is not the sum of the church's teaching ministry. It is merely the start of it. All of us together involved in instructing one another and teaching one another. It is God's plan. Look out for that theme. Paul tells Titus what to say to each of five different kinds of people. As Titus was supposed to instruct this church in this way, so I'll instruct you from God's word this morning, addressing various parties directly. But it's all God's word and instructive for us, of course. First, here's God's word to older men. Verse 2. Older men, you are to be, digni- you are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's God's word to you. This is what sound doctrine will lead to in your life when you know it and when you love it. Paul is not addressing the elderly here in particular, although it includes the elderly. He's addressing men, we could say, who are no longer young men. Men who are outside the child-rearing years, certainly any men who are outside the normal the season of normal daily work for their provision. So older men, you should be sober-minded. This means that you should be temperate and clear-headed. You should get your sleep. You should eat well. You should not get drunk. You should, and as much as you're able, you should stay sharp and engaged. Engaged with life and the body of Christ. We need you to be on. We need you to be sober-minded. We need you to help lead us. You should also be dignified, which means that you should be worthy of respect. And this has to do with your reputation. Respect, of course, requires in the first place that you be known here. You should be engaged in relationships with the church broadly and being known, you should be a model Christian. Not a perfect Christian, but walking before the Lord. One of the unique features of our present day and place in the world is that the older generation is not respected generally in proportion to their age. In fact, respect can even be inversely proportional to their age, and perhaps you feel this. Hope that you do not feel it in our church. But this is the Cretan context in which we live. Paul and Titus knew where they lived, and we need to know where we live, and this is an oddity of our culture. It's undervaluing of age and experience. This is partly a function of the marketplace. The older person is less likely to switch brands and they won't be buying things as long, so they don't get a heck of a lot of attention. Apparently, even Super Bowl ads are aiming below baby boomers. You can pump plenty of baby boomers watching the Super Bowl, but all the ads are focused at even younger demographic. So you can see it. Some interesting reading you can do on this, but the effect, the upshot is youthfulness ends up being overvalued and age and experience undervalued. So you're working uphill, but you're not alone. All of us are working uphill. In each of our roles, we are working uphill. Be dignified. Defy the spirit of the age. Live worthy of respect. Show us what a real man is. Show us younger men what it is to be an older man. Show us what we're aiming for. You should be dignified. You should have self-control. You should be self-controlled. Your time, your eating, your tongue, your temper. Cretans were out of control. You, if you're in Christ, should not be out of control. You should be working on controlling yourself. 
Self-control is the opposite of doing merely what feels good. It is doing what is good, whatever that may feel like at the moment. Get good at that. Get good at controlling yourself. You should be sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. That is in your relationship to God. You should be ever growing in your knowledge of him and of his word and in your love for him and in his word and in your faith. In your relationship to God's people, you must be full of love. Lead us in knowing the congregation well. You should know the names of many people in the room over time. You should be adding names to the list of people that you're familiar with and adding depth to the relationships that you have. You should be known by many and, getting, and be getting to know people. It's going to happen by coming early to engage in casual conversation and staying late to do the same and engaging meaningfully in a community group, which is merely a structure to put people in the same room together around God's word. And knowing people, you are leading us and loving them. Ministry is not hired out to church staff. Church staff are here to support you in your ministry. And finally, in your relationship to the world, you must be steadfast, unmoving, because you are fixed to Christ. Be a godly man, not a worldly man. Be steadfast. Notice that not on this list are mailing it in or cynical or grumpy. Temptations for older men. I was, uh, I've not been an older man, but I was a senior in high school and I was a senior in college and there's a thing called senioritis and it happens when we've been there and done that. We've sort of moved on. Don't move on. Don't move on. If God's got you alive, you belong here and be all in. In our culture, we have a thing called retirement, which you might've heard of. The time where a man or a woman lives off the investment of their work in previous years and so no longer has to work daily, ongoingly, though they may. Retirement is not a bad thing, but there's a Christian and a Cretan way to do it. The Cretan way to retire is to retire and check out, to be lazy. Consider that often retirement comes with an overall spirit of disengagement, even among faithful Christians. So that while a retired man has more time on his hands, he's actually not more engaged, but less engaged in the life of his church. He sees it as sort of a new phase of life, of general relaxation and disengagement. It should not be. Don't let retirement mean a greater investment in the family that you made, sons and daughters and grandchildren that need your attention, but less investment in the family that God made and made you a part of that needs you. Dare I say even more. Don't become less reliable or energetic in ministry now that you're retired. We need you and you need us. It's why we strive at DSC for intergenerational ministries. Intergenerational ministry, it's hard to structure a church this way. It takes saying no to some things, but the accent here is on community groups where all generations are together. They're not life stage designed. They're geographically designed and there should be a mix. Embrace the awkwardness that comes with being in a room with people in very different life stages and life situations. Every community group will have some of that. Lean into it. Keep showing up. And I'm not saying any of this, by the way, because there's a huge problem here, but only to, only to exhort you to continue in a pattern which really is yours largely. There are many wonderful examples of what Paul describes in our church. 
I remember uh, one conversation with a friend about my age. We'd been spending Saturdays biking with a number of brothers across the ages, and there was one gentleman who was retired who was very energetically investing in us, basically hanging out, talking, entering into our banter, and uh, riding bikes. And over time, we had observed him with his wife and involved in the church. There's an impression that's being made just by proximity to his life. He'd worked at putting his way himself in front of us. And my friend said, that's the kind of guy I want to be when I retire. See, he had a vision. He was given a vision for the kind of man that he would be, the kind of husband he would be. There are many examples of this in the church, many. So older men... Make us younger men talk about you behind your back. Do it. Make us say things like, that's what I want to be like when I grow up. That's the kind of marriage I want. That's the kind of husband I want to be. That's the kind of churchman I want to be. In this conversation with a friend, we actually use the word churchman. That's the best way to describe the guy. Engaged in his church all the way down. He traded out his time at work for time in the body. Many of you have done so. Those are some instructions to older men. Now hear God's word for older women. Three through five. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They, you, are to teach what is good. You'll notice that older men and older women get different instructions. It's not because there are things that are sinful for men that aren't for women and vice versa. No, it's because each of us have unique vulnerabilities, weaknesses, and temptation. Men get grumpy, and so they're told to be dignified and love your church. Don't be cynical. And women have their commands. So for you who are older women, this is God's word for you. As a woman of sound doctrine, you should be reverent in your behavior which is behavior that follows from a heart that reveres the Lord. I had a professor in college who would say, you can't live for the Lord until you live before the Lord. You can't live for the Lord until you live before the Lord. It was a Christian college, of course. It was a good point. It's easy, college-age students, to want to give their life to the Lord, to live for him and forget to live before him. But living properly for the Lord will always follow first from living before him, revering him in your heart and so evidencing reverent behavior. You should not be a slanderer or a slave to much wine. We can imagine how these things might go together. Women shared the same occupation as those caring in their homes. They mixed it up and they talked. And as years progressed, they got more comfortable with one another and there grows an insensitivity to the effect of slander, or maybe they don't care as much about what people think, and they're confident in their condescending thoughts, and so slander creeps in and starts to corrode their reputation and their love. There's a lot of talk going on in Crete, by the way, and plenty of sin. Cretans were liars, and liars lying is a sister, even a support to slander. A problem among the lady folk, slander is a weapon in the battle for the approval of friends that allows you to hack up the reputation of another person by blowing up the good thoughts about them that other people have. Be very careful with slander. It's often veiled. As for slavery to much wine, that Cretans were, and apparently this was a particular problem for the ladies. They would gather and slander wine in hand, not a good combination. 
Perhaps this was more of a problem for the older ladies. The camaraderie they shared with fellow moms had evolved into something dark. The support system that once supported them was now degenerating, descending into slander and slavery to wine. And let me say that our ladies are not above this. Our older ladies are not above this kind of culture. A glass of wine is not a sin. Jesus had a glass of wine. Depending on the person and the wine, a second glass of wine, probably not a sin. But be warned that wine will enslave you if you let it. If you give it permission, it'll take you. To say wine is sinful is not right. We addressed this issue of adding to God's word last week. To say that wine brings with it dangers is absolutely right and appropriate. Titus says as much right here. So do you find yourself drinking wine or a beer only to have another and another? And if you're honest, is it sort of hard to resist? You don't want to resist. You may be in danger. You may be guilty of or in danger of the sin of gluttony following your passions wherever they want to go. Do not be like an animal that does whatever its passions want. You're in Christ. You can control yourself. It says it is not legalism to decide that you're not going to have a glass again if you've struggled here. And it is not legalism to warn your sisters about the dangers of wine as Titus does warn the ladies here. Drunkenness is one of the sins that appears on most short lists of sins in the New Testament because it is unbecoming of those saved by God's grace, God's grace which fills them with God himself so that they do not need intoxication to, to get along in a day. You can destroy yourself, your family, and you'll damage the church in Christ's name. Be warned. One of the problems with slander and slavery to wine is how it corrupts your vocation in your older years. And what is that? To teach younger women. How wonderful is it that when you give yourself wholly to God, that God will give you wholly to the younger ladies in the church? Do you feel a lack of purpose in your older years? Here's your purpose. This is God's will for you. Invest in the younger generation. Older women, I understand that this may be intimidating, Whoever feels like they're all they should be at any stage in their Christian life. Teaching the younger women up close in the context of friendship inevitably means being known by the younger women, and that may be more intimidating than teaching behind a lectern where you have content control. But you see, this is a form of insecurity that is merely a subset of pride. So pray for the Lord to help you with this. Would you be surprised to learn that your inadequacies might actually be how God has humbled your for ministry to other ladies? And even itself, as you wrestle with them, a means by which God will use you to minister ladies who need to learn to live with and grow through their inadequacies as well? Here's an image that might help. The image of family. Sometimes discipleship or mentorship, it could be called uh, is intimidating because it uh, can be structured. You're not sure how to, how, to, how to do this. Well, you know how to do friendship and you know how to do family. Paul wrote to Titus, a father to a son. And this kind of familial relationship should extend in all directions throughout the church. Our younger women need mother figures spiritually 
counselors to offer advice, sisters to talk to, and shoulders to cry on. Let them see you suffer loss and sickness and difficulty. It's all a part of discipleship. And if you feel like you can't make a dent, well, that's okay. Uh, A dent's all you need to make, so work on a dent. Um, You can't take on the whole church, don't worry. Find a gal or two. Pray that the Lord would lead a gal or two to you. Or there's a kind of chemistry where you can invest in them over time. I'm sure glad Amy Gossett didn't entertain the thought that maybe she couldn't have any influence as she spent mm, a number of casual conversations with my wife about life and the Lord in my wife's early years. And according to my wife, changed her life through ordinary conversations, an older woman with a younger. You have more to offer than you realize. So sisters in Christ, seek one another out. Part of of establishing a healthy church on Crete for Titus was was getting the older women to instruct the younger women. We need the same thing. We need the same thing. But of course, you can't do any of this if you're busy slandering and drinking too much wine. So the command has a purpose. We have new moms and young marrieds who need discipleship and someone to follow. And all of this exhortation needs to be given with a measure of seriousness, with which I hope I'm giving it. But also, there is rightly a place here for encouragement. For as I read Paul's words, I see it pictured in our church in so many places and ways. So all of you who ladies who are engaging in various ways with other ladies in community groups or women's Bible study or in the hall, thank you. And for those of you who ladies who have taken an interest in my wife over the years and listened to her and cared for her and advised her, thank you. It serves me. It blesses my children. It makes our life happier. We talk about you and we praise God for you. Little things even. We've considered that older women should teach younger women. But what are older women to teach younger women? Hear God's word to younger women. Verse four through five, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I'll say two things uh, first. First, he's addressing young women in the lot of marriage, which was normal, more normal, and more normal younger in this time. For those of you ladies who are single, please listen in. Pray for the Lord to bless you with marriage if you desire. And be instructed by God's words here. Therefore, you too. The second thing is, is that in the original language, there are two technical words that are better translated barefoot and kitchen. Of course, I'm joking. But the joke only works because of a kind of hesitation we have with passages like this. Because of memes that we hear all the time. That both disparage homemaking and mothering and caring for a home. As though it's a second-rate vocation. Easy. For the unserious woman. So let me zero in on those words working at home first. This command, for young women to, this command for young women to work or be busy at home presents us with an important chance to practice reading the Bible in context. I was at a conference recently and was catching up with a friend had not spoken with for three or four years. 
sat down next to him and we were engaging in polite conversation and eating chicken and there was bread on the plate and some mashed potatoes and such. It occurred to me that I did not remember what, he'd recently moved jobs and I did not remember what, uh, what job that he was occupying. So I said, uh, give me your role. And the look on his face puzzled me for a moment. The look was puzzlement. The question seemed perfectly fine in the context of our conversation, but he had a role in his hand. And so he slowly started to move it against Trent. I thought you were sarcastic, but I didn't think you'd confront me with a demand for my role. Well, that's not what I meant. But you see, he was hearing my words through the context of the role in his hand, which wasn't completely unreasonable for a normal person. Well, the role in their hand. But it wasn't what I meant. And we can often hear God's word wrong because of things that are in our heads and can entirely miss the meaning of what God is saying. Is Paul saying that women can only work in the home, that careers are wrong? Work in the home. Is that the spirit and is that the command? Let's consider the context for Paul's words. First, this is the context of the first century world. It's not a world of choosing how many children you'll have together. It's not a world where men and women's physical differences mean little or nothing in the workplace, where ideas and knowledge and services are the greatest form of human capital. Capital. In the first century, the complementary physical and emotional differences between men and women, which are obvious, meant that men did right by women by working hard outside the home to then bring home the bacon. Not Jews. This is Crete. Someone who came up to me after the second service ago, now actually bacon wouldn't be quite right. Well, I said it's Crete. Parents together then do right by their children as the mother works hard inside the home, part of the partnership, feeding bacon to the children and preparing them to responsibly bring home their own bacon one day. There is a logic to nature that gives Paul's words a certain obviousness to it that any reader who respects original context of the first century should understand as plain and not offensive whatsoever. Outwardly and inwardly, the sexes are different, which affects how they have and rear children and live together. And they did not idolize vocation in that day. So is Paul addressing the issue of where women are busy working? No, he's addressing them in their normal stations. This doesn't mean that motherhood and caring for the home is now neither here nor there, only that we need not hear what some people hear, what we might be tempted to hear in this command, a disparagement of career work. The Bible does not prohibit women from careers. Proverbs 31 even praises the wife who is a partner in the profitability of the home, creating things, selling things, buying a field, making investments, and being praised by her husband for all of it. Investing, buying, and selling, and creating is part of what's on the list of the ideal woman in Proverbs 31. This is the first century world. He's addressing women in their normal station. Second, this is the context of a Cretan island. What was one of the main problems on Crete? Laziness. What's he addressing? He's addressing laziness. He's addressing the women in their normal station and saying, be busy. Don't not do your job. He's not contrasting women busy in the workplace with women busy in the home, but women busy in their normal station of the home with women who are lazy and neglecting their responsibilities, their children and their husbands there. Be busy with the responsibility God has given you, in other words. Now, with some of those things out of the way, young women, hear God's word now maybe more clearly for you. Love your husbands and children. 
love your husbands and children. If the Lord has given you a husband, he is the most important person in your life and your role as a wife is your most important role in life. And it is a glorious, laudable role. You belong to another person and another person belongs to you. This does not mean that it's easy. There's a reason these women were given this command. They were married to Cretan husbands. And not all of those lazy gluttons, evil beasts, and uh, always liars were Christians. Many of them had grown. Many of them may have been elder quality from the description in chapter 1. But it does not assume that all these husbands were perfectly godly. Far be it. Whatever difficulties you have in your marriage, your response to your spouse is yours before the Lord. So fix your eyes on Jesus as you labor to love in your marriage, which is not easy and requires grace from God. Jesus, who knows a difficult spouse in the church. It's a role so beautiful that is marriage and being a wife that it overflows in the gift of more life and the gift of children. What a beautiful thing, the multiplication of life in this relationship. Love your husband and love your children, your treasures, your trust. They'll pester you. They will drive you nuts. They will wake you up in the night so that your sleep is broken and you're not on your best the next day or the next. God could have designed children to get a full eight hours so that you could get a full eight hours, but he didn't do that and he's given them to you for their care. If you do work outside the home, let it be because it is a service to your family and let that vocation be oriented toward the good of your family and not as a getaway from your family. Work can be rewarding and work in the home is in some ways not always rewarding. But work in the home is where the Lord has you first, your family, your first responsibility. This is true for men as well. Remember the qualification for elders? The first was that he be a one-woman man, faithful husband, and that his children be in order. And if it feels hard, then that difficulty is only in proportion to the measure of responsibility the Lord has given to you and the measure of the reward that he will bestow upon you for being faithful. I had a nice little moment with my daughter yesterday at the dinner table. The kids will wrestle pretty hard in the family room. Before coming to dinner, Madeline got some kind of scratch here by her eye. They don't always notice their hurts until they're on their bed or until they're sitting at the dinner table. So we were tending to it in, in some ways. And she just got up and came over and sat on my lap, which she'll do sometimes when she was hurting. And I thought, I'm going to ask her a question. I want to see how she expresses her answer. I said, Madeline, why do you like to sit on my lap? Why did you come and sit on my lap? She wasn't sure what to say wasn't how to, sure to, how to verbalize her feelings. It came out slowly. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like you. It makes me feel like you love me like God loves me. And I picked up my phone and started typing it so I wouldn't forget what she said. <laughs> Melted my heart. I'm listening, baby. That was amazing. Almost fell out of my chair. Consider this, moms. You're the way that God loves your children. God has assigned you to the care of your children. Is that menial? It's unappreciated. The kids might not thank you in any meaningful way until they're 30 or 40. 
but God appreciates it. You're doing his work. That's how he's designed for children, for human beings in their early years to receive his care through a mom. Your job is to prepare prepare their souls for heaven through your instruction. And when that feels hopeless and you feel helpless, then your job is to pray for their souls. And in this, would you know that God is actually through your struggle with your children preparing your soul for heaven? There's so much here. Don't let the messaging from the world that work in the home is second rate and for unserious ladies convince you of a lie. It's beautiful work. Love your husband and your children. As part of this, Paul says that you're to be self-controlled and pure. This has to do with your passions. If you are not controlling your passions, they may very well lead you outside the home. Marriage is hard. Whatever you're imagining with someone else is a heck of a lot easier. And you're not imagining the difficulties. And you're not imagining the damage that following that relationship would leave. Control your passions. Control yourself. Control your imagination. As you're on Facebook, seeing the pictures of other men with their families and how happy they are. Always on Facebook, so happy. Control yourself, remain pure. You're not a cretin anymore. And be busy at home, kind and submissive to your own husband. Homes require a tremendous amount of work and Paul directs order in the home, not through daily checklists for wives, but through the daily maintenance of a healthy marriage, loving leadership and submission. Husbands, acknowledge the work of your wife. They need encouragement to fulfill this. Never ask, what have you done all day? Always ask, How has your day gone? You've been in two different places often all day long and expectations and moods can collide. Be predictably gracious. I am preaching to myself. Be predictably gracious. Have a listening ear and curious as to how your wife's day went. The rhythms that she's dealing with in those younger years of motherhood are difficult and unrewarding and the messes keep coming back. Submission is a wife's role in a properly ordered marriage characterized by loving partnership. It does not indicate incompetence on the part of the wife, but a difference in assignment by God that is ordained by him and that is beautiful. There's a complementarity in marriage in terms of role. We spent some time on this, maybe eight minutes, about a year ago in a sermon in Ephesians. You can listen to that for more development, but let me just say that submission to a husband's loving leadership, to his leadership is a part of your lot. And Paul has not overly qualified it here. Of course, it's unto the Lord. So don't don't follow your husband's lead where he leads away from the Lord. And it's a partnership. All that's assumed. And what's at stake in all of this? Do not let the word of God be reviled. How meaningful is your work in the home? Back to the men. To younger men. Verses 6 through 8. Verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Period. Well, that's it. Maybe younger guys are dull. Guys, listen. Self-control. Okay? Whatever you struggle with, self-control. It sort of covers the bases, does it not? Notice that self-control is a repeated character trait in each of the character lists in this book. It is on repeat. Self-control. If you can nail that, you can nail a lot of things. Temper, lust, time. 
It might be enough to say self-control, but Paul continues to address the young men in an indirect way through Titus. Titus was to be a model of what a young man is. Let's read verse 7. Show yourself in all respects, Titus, to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Who is Titus to instruct men and women, old and young? Well, he was a man with a Bible in his hand. And one way that he executed his ministry was by living it out with seriousness. As a young man, he was to be a serious man, a dignified person, responsible, his speech and his life demonstrating maturity beyond his years, matching what he believes. And for all young men, it should be this way. Follow Titus's example in the description Paul gives to him. Now God's word to bond servants, verses 9 through 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Sometimes this word bond servants is translated slave, but slave is not a good translation, especially for those of us where we live, when we leave, live, who imagine the institution of slavery in our own nation's history. It is not the same thing. In the first century, it was not an essentially dehumanizing institution. A slave, a bondservant may have been a bondservant for economic reasons. There was no bankruptcy law. He may have entered it voluntarily to advance his own career, if you will, economic situation. Paul condemns outright the buying and selling of human beings. It was not essentially a brutal institution. There were brutal masters, and they were, as there are brutal fathers and bosses. And many slaves would have appreciated very much a gentler master. But the institution itself was not defined by brutality. And it's not an essentially permanent institution. In most cases, it was temporary. A temporary lot for those working their way to freedom. Often, bond servants would manage banks and serve in prestigious posts in the community. It was the working class. All of that said, the New Testament doesn't present this institution as a normal part of ideal society. It grounds marriage in creation order. It does not ground this in creation order or give instructions for its ordering. He speaks to Christians in their specific lots. And that's not because inequities are essentially a problem. Some people working over or under others or making more or less money is assumed. People are different. Their aptitudes, abilities, talents, their childhoods where they grew up and their skills, even their desires, are all different. The problem was the way that this institution, structured as it was and given human sin, lent itself to great abuses, which is why Paul roots the roles of men and women in creation and not these roles. So in subtle ways, the New Testament in Paul's letters undermines the structure of this institution by addressing slaves and masters in Ephesians as equals before the Lord, having the same master accounting to the same Lord. And this really, really high view of humanity, which is unique to Christianity, is the reason why slavery is abolished in nearly every corner of the world today. Not every corner. Until about 150 years ago, every civilization down history had an institution of slavery, some brutal, some tied to worldview. Hinduism and Buddhism with reincarnation, see the lot that you're born into is a lot that you deserve. So there's a whole... There's a whole structure, a class of people that can never break through the ceiling because they're getting what they deserve. Worldviews matter. Christianity dignifies the human person 
Bondservants might be tempted to force into the present the reality of the future. And Paul doesn't encourage them, Christians, minorities as they were, to make a fuss here, but to fulfill their lot responsibly. Christianity, just to note, it's a good opportunity to mention this, is the reason why slavery is abolished in the world. And I can point you to some good reading on this if you email me. Within the last 150 years, it's been abolished almost everywhere. It is the evangelical awakening in Great Britain, in particular Christians leading, leading within culture to create political pressures to de-incentivize a pro-slavery position in Great Britain. So that eventually it became expedient to be against slavery. And it was abolished completely. And Western countries followed suit. No one wanted to be on the wrong side of this and then pressured the rest of the world in a variety of ways not to be backward. And so slavery is almost gone. An almost impossible thought. But it began with Christian preaching and gospel believing and healthy engagement for the good of people and love for neighbor. But if slavery and bond servanthood are different things, then how does this carry over to us? Because that's how we need to hear God's word, right? Obey your superiors wherever you have earthly superiors. Obey completely in the context of your job and everything. Of course, disobey your boss where obedience means disobeying the Lord. A close family member of mine, a CPA, lost his job for not cooking the books for his boss a major life-changing event without a job. A move was in order. He had a family. Be ready for that. No cost is so great that God will not reward you for it. Obey him over a boss, but obey wherever you can and should. Be known for obedience. Obey to please them. Make them glad that you're around. Be happy, supportive, and engaged. See that you're worth more to them than they pay you. Can your superiors say that their workday is happier because you're in the mix? Obey without arguing. In some jobs, giving input and back and forth is part of your job, and you should. But whatever it means in the context of your workplace to be an argumentative person, don't be that person. Obey without pilfering. Don't steal money, products, clients, time. Instead, show good faith and be famous for honesty. If you're in sales, here's a good question to ask about any transaction. Do I have to distort the truth to my company, my superior, a coworker, a partner, or a client in order to secure this business? If so, then lose the business or be more creative. Believe that God can provide for you without requiring you to deceive someone else. If you make less, which you probably will, at least in the near term, that's what the Lord provided for you. You don't own someone else's money. Don't deceive somebody, hide reality or manipulate reality in order to get what you want. The temptations are there, and there's a lot of that that goes on, obviously. Don't be party to it. Hard as it may be, consider that in your everyday obedience, in the context of your job, you're adorning the doctrine of God, your Savior. Regular daily work. And consider that even a bondservant who had often a lowly position was spoken to as one who adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. How motivating is that? To obey well, happily, please work as unto the Lord in all things. The Lord is in this. The gospel changes 
every person in every role and every relationship at every stage of life. And so we've seen it applied in five ways. Answering the question, what kind of life accords with sound doctrine? Now let's answer the question, how does doctrine lead to that kind of life? Especially a life zealous for this kind of life, zealous for good works. Well, here's some good news for good works, verse 11 through 15. Good news for good works. Our sanctification progresses along the tracks of sound doctrine, the grace of God and the gospel. Which is why Paul does more than tell Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. But he reminds Titus of the glory of the doctrine he believes and how it works for transformation. Which is Titus' job to pass on. Which I hope you catch this morning. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. It's appearance number one. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify him for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Now that's an earful of doctrine, but it is a heartful of doctrine. Consider that God changes everything about your past and future and present That's not theoretical. That's not theory. That's reality. And it leads to practice. God's grace. Brothers and sisters, older men and women, younger men and women, if you're in Christ, look back to Christ's cross where the grace of God appeared. There's a look back and a look forward here. God's grace is free. It comes to you freely. Because it couldn't, there's no hope for you if it's not free. You have nothing to offer as a sinner. How great is your need? It required Christ to die on a cross to cover your sins. And God has done it freely through Jesus Christ. And this grace frees you to obey, whereas you were a slave to fear and guilt. Now you're free in relationship to the Lord as a father to a son to love him and obey him with your whole life. It's how God's grace trains you for godliness and frees you for it. He took you who were lawless, who disregarded his word and made you his treasured possession. That's what you are. You're his treasured possession because of Christ's cross work. Grace gets inside you. It makes you pure. Purified us for his own possession. Purified us for good works. Marvelous, infinite, matchless Grace freely bestowed on all who believe. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace that trains us in godliness. When you look back, do you see only sin? If you look forward then, all you see is condemnation. And the Bible says that you live in the fear of death. You may repress this and suppress it but it's true, you're not ready to die. If you would trust Christ and give yourself to him and believe that his cross deals with your sin and accept God's free grace, making no contribution of your own, when you look back, you'll see the love of God and Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, covering your sin. And when you look forward, you'll see his glorious return. We look back, we also look forward to Christ's return, the second appearing he mentions Christ will return in glory. He will return in the glory of judgment 
to put right all wrong things, to put sin away, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and always liars away. But that can be your former you. You don't have to look forward to the judgment of God and the glory of Christ's coming. You can look forward to salvation. And if you're in Christ, then you look forward to the glory of Jesus Christ in salvation, his glorious appearing. And so as you look back and you look forward, now you can look around and you see the present age right. This isn't all that there is. And even the future age is broken into it in your own salvation. You are already redeemed, but you are being redeemed. One day you'll be completely redeemed. You're purified and you're being purified by God. And his grace is training you, constantly training you to renounce ungodliness and the passions you chase that are of this world. He's working on you all the time to make you more godly. And his grace is training you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And it's been training you as you've been sitting under this sermon, listening to these instructions of Titus to each of us in our own station. Praise God for his grace to teach us how to love him and live for him. Sound doctrine leads to good deeds, zealous good deeds. He changes us from the inside out so that we love to love him. And good deeds show off, even adorn, as a setting does a diamond, the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sound doctrine. We thank you for the apostolic message in these books, this book of Titus. We thank you for the truth we have here about you, the truth we have here about ourselves, and especially the truth we have here about Christ and his gospel. Help us to believe it and to live it, for we need it badly. And Father, make us through this sound doctrine zealous for a sound life, zealous for good deeds, and may we as your people adorn the glory of the doctrine of God our Savior in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A beautiful depiction to you and to one another and to the world of what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.